happen in a week. A lot can happen in one week. Although I was right, I said at the last episode, we'll see you next year. Sure enough. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 2022 is here. Rest in peace, Ms. Betty White. Yes. That was very, that was a, that was not a great way to end the year. No, it wasn't. But you know what was a great way to end the year? This time last week, we were on Baby Watch and we Mm -hmm. had to have all the devices on so ringers could come in in case we had to zip off. Well, we're not on baby watch. We're not on baby watch anymore. (laughs) Christmas Eve at about five o'clock in the morning, my daughter called. Yeah. It was at five. Yeah. Because I got up. Yes. My daughter called. I drove down, almost hit a whole herd of deers on the road trying to get down there in time and uh, got there in plenty of time. Oh, yeah. Picked up up the other two, brought Mm -hmm. them back home and Sarah went off and now we have Julian. Yep. Welcome to the world, Julian. Super cute. Yep. He was born at 6.07 in the p.m., weighing eight pounds even, standing, laying at about 21 and a half inches. And mom, dad, big brother, and big sister are doing just fine. And so is Julian. And so is Julian. Jules is doing good, too. Julian is doing just great. Um. Big sister has already changed several diapers and almost got peed on, but uh, I don't think she has been yet. And a uh, little brother who is very active is learning how to be gentle with a baby. And we're being flooded with pictures, which is just awesome. Yep. So. So that was Christmas. Yeah, and then we, that was Christmas. We had our Of course, we had we had the family. The, we thing. had the uh, the big brother, big sister with us for Christmas morning. Mm-hmm. And that was um, just great I having was, them there, having yeah. little ones in the house again for Christmas morning. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, and I was really worried that Sarah wouldn't get to see her kids at well, the, all of her family together at Christmas time because of COVID things. Right now, you can't have visitors at the hospital. But uh, small Christmas miracle: she was released on Christmas Day in the evening, so she spent roughly twenty-four hours and like. 15 minutes at the hospital just long enough to make sure that Julian was in good shape. Um, They let her come home on Christmas. And so they all got to be together for Christmas evening, which was good. And then we had, um, you know, the rest of our family, their side excluded because, you know, one of them had just popped out a baby. We had our Christmas dinner the next night and then a week of laziness between Christmas and New Year's where we ate a lot. And then we went to visit my family down in Kentucky on the river. Which we woke up Lake. on uh, New, New Year's, Year's morning. It was a New Year's Day. No, we woke up on New Year's yeah, it morning. Yeah, New Year's Day, wasn't it? Woke up New Year's morning to tornado, tornado warnings. Our, our phones went off and ramp, ramp, ramp and all those sounds. And then uh, tornado warnings and rained all day, but it was like 70 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it was really beautiful where their house is overlooking the lake. It was it was beautiful. Uh, it was stormy. It was rainy, but that just added to the, I'll say, the lake atmosphere. It was re- I enjoyed it. Yeah, my dad and I took a nap. Well, you guys went to the well. Steve and my stepmom went to uh, Kroger. Kroger, and I guess they like doing. I know Steve does. I guess Tina does too. But Pop and I took a nap. I and love. I feel like we got the better end of the deal. I love storms. He turned on, I think he was watching football, I don't know, which made it really easy for me to fall asleep because I'm not a big football fan. Which person, was a so. great weekend for football if you're a Kentucky fan because Kentucky won, and if you're a Buckeye fan, the Ohio State Buckeyes won, which didn't go over so well with my father-in-law, but he was polite and <laughs> recognized that I grew up in Columbus, and if you grew up in Columbus, you're going to be an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. Like I said, I had five dogs to choose from with which to snuggle. And uh, and I took full advantage of all five. So it was a great week, great break. But we're back now. And um, this is kind you, of a repeat or part no, two. It's part uh, two. It's a follow up. So this episode is called Somebody's Got to Do It. 
the history edition. Um, we had our own Someone's Gotta Do It at the beginning of our podcasting journey where it we was talked about number jobs. two. Oh, was it our second episode? It was our second episode. Stuff that uh, Steve and I have done um, for different jobs and kind of told some stories from those. This week, um, so last week we mentioned that being a milkmaid wasn't always a great time. On the 12 days of Christmas. Yeah, when we were talking about the 12 days of Christmas. But Steve said, surely there must have been much worse jobs throughout history. So lucky for you all, I'm a weirdo that's fascinated by gross stuff. So this week I took over the researching and I decided to go looking for some of the most disgusting jobs throughout history. Now, I want to put this out there right up front. If you are squeamish, this may not be the best episode for you. So Not everyone is that bad. N- not everyone. Th- there's some pretty gross stuff in here. So if you're squeamish and you feel like you need to skip this episode, that's no totally one, fine. No one is going to be running off to the vomitorium. No, but it's, it's there's some kind of gross stuff. We may or may not get into detail as we're talking about it. So if you at any point feel like this is ugh, gross, it's okay. It's purely a matter of opinion. You can, if, if this is too gross for you, it's, un, it's, we understand if you have to skip this one, go listen to one of our other shows. It's fine. Um, you, you can make it, you can handle it. But if you like blood, guts and bodily fluids, strap in for our first show of 2022. So let's start with something that sounds like it might be kind of smelly maybe, but not too bad. A fuller. And what is a fuller you ask? Well, that's kind of putting the cart before the horse, or uh, let's say the sheep. So a brief tutorial on how wool is made. Every year at the end of winter, sheep farmers shear their sheep. Today, they use an electric tool similar to a razor, a sheep shear, that removes all the sheep's fleece in one piece. Shearing is extremely beneficial to the sheep because without it, the sheep can be extremely matted, dirty, uncomfortable, Especially during the spring and the summer months when mm-hmm. it gets hot. So after the wool is gathered, it has to be clean, obviously, because you can't make a sweater out of dirty sheep wool. <laughs> so some of the byproducts of cleaning the wool get used for other purposes. There's a byproduct called lanolin, which is a waxy substance that's secreted by sheep that helps protect their wool. And it's included in many beauty products, such as skin moisturizer that mm-hmm. you put on your face which I don't do. I don't know if my moisturizer has lanolin in it. Yeah, well, I'll have to look. I can guarantee mine does not. You don't use moisturizer. That's right. Next, wool fibers go through a process called carding, and that pulls them through very fine metal teeth. Sheep wool is naturally curly, so carding straightens out the fibers and makes them soft and fluffy. Kind of like a cotton ball, maybe. Yeah. Originally, carding would be done by hand using two metal combs. By the end of carding, the wool fibers are lined up into a thin, flat piece. These sheets can then be drawn into long, thin pieces called rovings. Then comes spinning, which turns the wool pieces into a material that's usable. Spinning uses a a wheel, and I think we've all seen pictures of spinning wheels, um, to spin two to five strands of wool together. This forms long, strong pieces of wool that you would now recognize as yarn. So once you have your yarn, sometimes the yarn is dyed to get all the pretty colors and all the different sweaters. Sometimes it isn't dyed, and that's turned into all kinds of warm and different cozy products, like sweaters. When I get a sweater, I like mine like the natural coloring. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. I, I kind of tend to also. But your ugly Christmas sweaters, oh, which really aren't I'd... yarn. There's some sort of cotton. Synthetic, synthetic fiber. Yeah. yeah, they have lots of different colors. Yeah. So that seems pretty straightforward, right? It's how it's been done for eons of time. Yeah, long time. Okay, but let's go back to that second step where the wool is cleaned. Turns out it's not as simple as it sounds. Mm. Because of the naturally produced lanolin, wool is a waterproof material. However... Natural wool is also pretty coarse and scratchy, so it has to be softened as it's clean. But obviously, you can't use dirty, itchy, raw wool, Mm -hmm. and you can't clean it with water, Hmm. so what can you do? Here comes the fuller. A fuller's job was to first beat the wool with either a club or the fuller's feet or hands. So with all this beating, this thins the wool enough to make it 
uh, slightly more porous. At that point, an alkaline solution must be applied very thoroughly for several hours as the fullers continue to work on the wool, softening it and removing the grease and oils from the fibers. Now, can you think of a handy alkaline fluid, dear? How about urine? Yep. Pee? Yep. That's right. A fuller would spend up maybe eight hours of trampling down itchy, stinky wool in a big vat of aged human pee. Mm. Urine. Okay. Later, alcohol was used to the same effect, but you know... There's just something about the old ways. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like yeah. it's kind of like we we've seen those pictures of the Italian ladies like stamping on grapes, grapes to yeah. make to make wine. Well, this is how you make wool. Yeah, it's not quite the same unless you get some old pee in there and tromp it down with your feet and stretch it out with your hands. I remember my granny. That's how you get it. Get rid is of an old earache. Oh, you pee in your ear. Pee in an ear. Yep. According to granny, that's on another episode. But anyway. <laughs> Now, speaking of animals and waste, I have a two-for-one in our next job. Besides wool, leather has been an incredibly important animal byproduct throughout history. Now, the history of leather began about 400,000 years ago in Hoxney, England. Its evolution can be traced around the world and through the Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Ancient times, the Middle Ages. That's the, going back a long way. The Renaissance, the Industrial Revolution, and into modern times. It really is one of the oldest materials in the world. Leather's been used to create just about every item you can think of, from shoes and clothing to tools, weapons and shields, to cups and bags and books. It's a little bit more work-intensive than spinning yarn, but the process of leather creation, I think, is just as interesting. So before we get into historical leather making, let's take a quick glance at how it's done today. First, raw animal hides are packed in rock salt for about 30 days. This preserves the hides and keeps them from rotting. Later, the salt is removed from the hides by tumbling and hammering them, and they can also be placed in soaking drums for a couple of days to rehydrate the material, remove any remaining salt and grime. Hides are then treated to remove any hair or remaining animal flesh, and then also to soften and increase, you know, the hide's usability. Yeah. So, like, our Native Americans would use a lot of buckskin and a lot of mm-hmm. leather and hides. So, where do they get the rock salt? From natural salt deposits. Yep. Okay. Um, the hides are then ready for the tanning process, which involves various preservative and softening agents. And don't worry, we'll come back to the tanning process in a minute. After tanning and fat liquoring, hides are placed in a machine for sammying. Now, sammying is the removal of moisture through pressure because you want hides to be dry um, so that they're not, you know, wet leather is kind of uh, Following this, the hides can be sorted by quality and shaved down to uniform thicknesses. So like for furniture or jackets or whatever that may not come from one piece of hide, you want to s- make everything, you don't want one part thicker than another. I think uh, for the samine process, if they didn't have pressure, they would just stretch the hides and let them sit in the sun. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the hide is then retanned using a combination of chromium salts and other materials. Now, this alters the leather to suit its use, after which the hides are dried. And that's where, um, you know, this is where you might stretch them out uh, it, in the sun back in olden days. Or um, nowadays, I guess you could put them in like a big heated area. At this point, leather today is dyed and may be treated for durability or a variety of other reasons. That doesn't sound that bad. No, but back in the day, the way tanning done was pretty extreme. This is where our first of two jobs comes in, a purifinder. Hmm. Do you want to guess what they do? Uh, they find pure. Like, okay. What is, what well, is, you what is a, that in you your said mind? A pure finder? You said okay, a pure so finder. So they find, they find pure. Pure what? Pure leather. Okay, good guess. The job of a pure finder was to collect dog poop. I was way off. (laughs) I mean, pure dog poop, maybe. So this is from an 1851 article, quote, Dog's dung is called pure from its cleansing and its purifying properties. I call it poop. The dry, limey-looking sort 
Betches, <laughs> betches. There's some of that out in the backyard. I know. Right it's going to be so hard to get through this without <laughs> laughing at everything, like this whole show. Okay. Um, the dry, limey looking sort fetches the highest price at some yards as it is found to possess more of the alkaline or purifying properties. Now, just for notice, we try to pick up the dog poop in the backyard before it gets to that stage. Uh, we. But Keyword, sometimes you miss some. The operative word being try. Sometimes you miss some. Anyway. It's not as bad to step in. Others are found to prefer the dark, moist quality. <laughs> <laughs> Strange as it may appear, the preference for a particular kind has suggested to the finders of pure the idea of adulterating it to a very considerable extent. This is affected by means of mortar broken away from old walls and mixed up with the whole mass, which it closely resembles. In some cases, however, the mortar is rolled into small balls similar to those found. So basically, like in any industry, there's going to be people that try to cheat you, even the poop collecting industry. So if you had a tanner that wanted like the drier, more limey poop, um, the the pure finders would like chip away mortar from from buildings and mix it in with the poop so that it is not, you know, they're kind of in a sense distilling the the poop and selling them something different than what they thought they were getting. I guess today instead of walking through the park, I think I would just go to the pound or a kennel and say, "Hey, I'll clean out your dog poop." Yeah. We're going to talk at the end toward but the I'm end sure of the show. But I'm sure there's a different way to do it now. I'm sure there is. And we're going to talk at the toward the end of the show about kind of modern day equivalents of some of these jobs. Now, in case you were wondering, because I know you are, a bucket of dog poo would fetch the equivalent of about $2.50 in today's terms. A bucket. A bucket. The yeah. picking up. I'm rich. <laughs> I'm I rich. Don't, we don't have quite a bucket, do we? We have like, we may, we may have $5 worth of poop. Okay. Maybe. But picking up and selling dog poop wasn't even the worst of the two leather making jobs. The people who were buying buckets of dog poop were the tanners. A tanner first obtained skins of slaughtered cattle and the blood, dirt, manure, hooves, and horns that went with them, the whole cow, everything but the moo. After trimming the skins, the tanner rinsed the raw material in a local waterway or well. If he was using the local waterway, downstream neighbors might complain about what was drifting downstream because they're using that water mm-hmm. so for their got... drinking water, for their cleaning, their cooking, and all mm-hmm. that good stuff. So imagine drinking bloody poo, poo water. Bloody yeah. poo tanning water. Ugh. Then there was the matter of getting rid of all the hair way down to the roots. While maintaining the grain, tanners would let the hair rot by sprinkling it with urine. (laughs) (laughs) This this episode is going to be full of poop and pee, just so you know. Folding the skins, hair side in, and pulling them up in a warm place, or they could soak them in an alkaline solution made of wood ash or lime. So pee or wood ash or lime. When the hairs were loose enough, the tanner spread the hides over wooden beams and used special knives to scrape off the hair on one side and whatever flesh was on the other. Next came another washing. This is when the tanner could use a solution of dog poop, which would remove lime and make the product softer and more flexible. Pliable, I guess would be the right word. Yeah, there you go. Or the craftsman might use fermented barley or rye with stale beer or urine as an additive. Sometimes he might also use the brain of an animal. In fact, according to my brother, who's... Terry's into uh, leatherworking. An animal has the right amount of brains to tan its own hide. So there you go. A little bit of trivia right yeah, there. Yeah, I hadn't realized that until, um, you know, we kind of talked to him a little bit. The hides were washed again and washed. See, we go to all sorts of sources. We do. We know. We're yeah. so smart. We know everything. Yeah. Feel we're not, actually. That's, <laughs> where, that's why we have sources. Yeah. Feel sorry for those downstream yet. Then the tanner needed to preserve his work with a solution made with the with bark of an oak spruce fir, or whatever else was available. This was done in two phases. The first pit used a weak solution, probably left over from the second phase. Medieval people didn't let things go to waste back in the day. The hides were taken in and out of the first pit until they attained the desired color. So if you want like dark shoes, you keep putting them in and out. Mm -hmm. Then the tanner placed the hides in a deeper pit and layered them with bark. Cold water or a weak tanning solution was poured over them. The hides set, 
probably for about a year. After that, the tanner would sell the hides to other craftsmen who would provide the finished products. Tanneries smelled so bad, they were usually located well outside, and I would hope downwind of town. Yeah, most likely. Yep. But yeah, so it was, uh, you know, the, not the people that were living downstream of the tanneries, that was not exactly prime real estate. Um, it was not, you know, it was outside of town. Kind of like living next to the airport now. Yeah, or the, what did they call it? The, uh, like the sanitation department, you know, where they have those great big vats where they yeah. clean everything. Anyway. Yep. So, yeah. So being a tanner was, uh, it was pretty gross, pretty dirty work because at least a fuller, they just had to work with urine and, and wool, but tanners had to work with carcasses and uh, urine and poo and blood and guts. Are you tired of poop yet? Um, I hope not. Well, not yet. Because the next job on our list is the high-ranking groom of the stool. Now, these are real jobs. These are real. Yes, these are real jobs. Much worse than the milkmaid. Um, yeah, actually. In my opinion. I don't know that this one. I don't know that this one is. It's This one is not necessarily gross. It's just kind of a weird one. So this position was created by none other than infamous ladies man, King Henry VIII. And it was actually a really highly sought after position because it put you in close proximity to to his royal highness during some of his most vulnerable moments. I don't know if I'd want to be that close to Henry. (laughs) Yeah, Henry especially. Especially if I was a lady. Henry, oh no, you would not be a lady doing this. Um, Henry, yeah, Henry may not be my first pick to serve as his groom of the stool. He was a rather portly man known for having not the greatest hygiene. Um, the, well, he also had that. Yeah. He had like syphilis ulcer on his yeah, leg. He too. Was, yeah. He was pretty gross. Um, so the groom of the stool is also probably where the term stool comes from. But he re- was the king in regard to fecal matter in the good old days. Royalty <laughs> were followed around. Good old days being <laughs> subjective. <laughs> subjective. Yeah. yeah. In the good old days, royalty were followed around with a portable toilet called a stool, along with a basin of water and some cloths. Hmm. Now, to ensure that he was carrying out his job at peak efficiency, the groom of the stool would also have closely monitored the king's diet and meal times, and would have organized his day around the king's predicted motion. Okay. So I just, this made me think, I was listening to a radio show the other day about... Um, all the testing and how it's kind of invasive with all the COVID testing. testing. Yeah. And a lady said, oh, there's another way because it's getting kind of the point that we don't need to know every individual case. We're looking for trends. Mm. And said, we can probably get just as much trend of a community by going to the wastewater treatment plant and we can measure virus in the wastewater and we can, really? get, the, and we can get the trend of how much viruses in the community. And that's more or less, it sounds like what they're trying to go to because Is that what they're doing? They're testing That's a way that's a way to do community poop. Yeah, because everyone's like tired of you know, I I don't want to take a test. I want to take a test. And yeah. It sounds like what the CDC and these people want to do now is measure trends of a community. It's on the rise, it's on the decline, and they can do this by testing the amount of virus hmm. at the wastewater plant. I okay. Mean, Also, side note, you would be amazed at, I really tried to come up with multiple ways to say poop in this episode, because we talk about it a lot. So, uh, back back to the groom of the stool. The king's predicted motion is what we went with this time. Now, depending on the monarch, the groom of the stool may have had to help clean. Smells like Rupert needs a groom of the stool. (laughs) (laughs) The groom of the stool may have had to help clean the royal hiney, but more likely he just helped the king undress to do his business. Probably because he's eating different dog food at your, oh, at your yeah. dad's place. Anyway. anyway. While we're on the subject of business, the grooms were rewarded handsomely for their positions. Over time, they came to act more as personal secretaries to the king and were rewarded with high pay and some really good benefits, such as the right to lodgings in every palace the sovereign's old clothes, and the option to have any used bedchamber furnishings. Believe it or not, the groom of the stool isn't that antiquated of a position either. It was an actual member of the court until 
current Queen Elizabeth's cousin, Edward VII, abolished it in 1901. So it's not that it's not that like long gone. That was 121 years ago. That's not that long ago. Yeah, but you know what? We weren't even flying airplanes right then. The Wright brothers haven't even made their first flight. So I guess it was a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. Okay. But you know what? If you were the king of the stool, the groom 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 of the stool, (laughs) that may have been a sought-after position Mm -hmm. and worthwhile because of all the hand-me-downs you got. Yeah. But if you were a commoner in the days of merry old England... It wasn't um, all grooms of the stool and free recycled sheets type stuff. Okay. Rat catchers was another job, and rat catchers were tasked with catching and disposing of rats and other pests in a city. I gave you this one on purpose, by the way. Oh, yes, because you know how much I just love mice and rats. Yeah. They were the ancestors of today's modern exterminators. In medieval Europe, rats and mice were responsible for spreading disease and epidemics such as the plague. No, they were not. Indirectly, they were. It wasn't. Okay. Yes, it was the fleas. It was the fleas that were carried on the rats that spread the plague, but rats still did spread other diseases. They spread other diseases. Yes, they did, but not the plague. Not the plague. That is true. I never thought I would see the day that you were defending a rat. Well, I guess not. (laughs) <laughs> I just like to be accurate. That's true. In a You're time, right. You're exactly right. In a time where people had no refrigerators or freezers, rats and mice and vermin would also threaten a home's food supply. With one pair of rats producing upwards of 600, let me say this slowly, 646,808 offspring within three years. Now, who That's counted all those? Over half a million yeah. Offspring. They were able years. to consume as much food as 64,680 people. Black rats in particular would live among the city's inhabitants, getting into wooden houses and hiding in the straw where poorer folks would sleep. Rat catchers would attempt to catch the vermin themselves or use animals trained to hunt and kill them. Now I'm going to ask you, what kind of dog was trained to kill or hunt rats? Um... A chihuahua. No. Why? Well, why do you think a chihuahua? <laughs> why do you think a chihuahua? Because they can. They look enough like a large rat that they can like infiltrate the rat's secret hiding places and like get to know them and make friends with them and then boom, kill Chel- them all. Chelsea, if you're listening, <laughs> feel free to uh, text Kim. No, mostly it was the terrier breeds. Oh, even yeah. the the that Karen, makes sense. even the They're Karen- like a rat. Terrier. Yeah, and yeah, the okay. Karen the Terrier, little Toto, the Karen oh. Terrier, and Dachshunds, and some other breeds, but they were bred, and they were used to uh, hunt rats. But putting the dogs aside, children often <laughs> were rat catchers because they were small and quick, and they would work for less money than their adult counterparts. And I don't know. they. I, I guess you had to feed them more than kibble, though. Maybe. I mean, that's kind of up to them, right? Well, whoever, their mom and dads. But because of the dangers posed by vermin, the rat catcher was actually a well-respected and very important position in society. It was a difficult occupation, however, with rat catchers having to go into dirty and very unsanitary places to catch their their prey. And they also then had to handle potentially disease-ridden or rabid Rats and mice, in addition to poisons like arsenic. Yeah, because they would kill the rat. That was their job to kill the rats and stuff, too. Um, so they, they had to handle all kinds of hazardous materials with their bare hands. Now, if a rat, ca- rat catcher did happen to get bitten, there are a few workers who could help him. One of these was a leech collector, which is exactly what it sounds like. A bloodletting is about to happen. Uh-huh. The process of bloodletting is a somewhat complicated one. Thousands of years ago, Hippocrates believed that existence was represented by the four basic elements, earth, air, fire, and water, which in humans were related to the four basic humors, which were blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Still with me? (laughs) Yep. Okay. 
Now, each humor was centered in a particular organ, either the brain, the lung, the spleen, or the gallbladder. And they were all, and this is all according to Hippocrates. And each was related to our particular personality type, sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholic, and choleric. Being sick meant having an imbalance of the four humors. Therefore, treatment consisted of removing an amount of the excessive humor by means such as bloodletting, purging, catharsis, diuresis, and so on. So, (laughs) for example, if you were choleric, you had too much yellow bile in your gallbladder, and so that's where we would enter the leeches. Leech, and, and so they would put like a, if they thought that you were acting a certain kind of way, then they would apply leeches to sort of the opposite um, body part and they would suck out the bad humor, the humor that you have too much of. And so then you would be balanced. Thank goodness, modern medicine <laughs> with things like how to control diseases and all yeah. that good stuff has evolved. Yeah. Y- yeah. Imagine otherwise, trying to treat otherwise, depression. And- otherwise, certain... CDC experts might be saying, well, let's put a leech on everybody and we'll bleed the virus right out of them. Could you imagine? Yeah, I could. It's like, and then that would depend too. So um, we always come back to COVID. So the Omicron variant, one of the side effects of the, or the, like the symptoms. He needs blood. One of the symptoms of the Omicron variant is um, insomnia. But what, so that would be, like it would be a challenge to treat because one of the symptoms of the Delta variant is extreme fatigue. So you would need to know which version you are treating and to know where to put the leeches. Anyway, leech collectors used to wade into ponds and just collect the little suckers to the point where they almost went extinct. The leeches went almost extinct in Ireland, Wales, the Netherlands, and England by the 18th century. Did you know that? Nope. I didn't either. I think that's so interesting. And even though leeches are still used in medicine today, they definitely have some risky aspects. You can't really tell how much of blood a leech is taking, so it can be hard to know when to stop and pull the leech off of the affected Hang area. On. I, I, I have a thought. Oh. How about if the leech is like one inch long and you put it on and it sucks up all the blood and then it's two inches along you know about how much blood the leech has taken in. Right or wrong? Wrong. Oh. Because what if you only need a half an inch of blood to be taken out? Then you take the leech off when it's an inch and a half long. But you don't know. You don't know how much they need to take out. Um, If a person is anemic or they have an unknown clotting disorder, then that becomes even more of a problem because as they eat... Leeches secrete an anticoagulant that allows them to continue to gorge themselves. Well, these doctors figured out where yellow bile and black bile came from. Surely they could tell how much, you know, let a leech suck and then cut it open and measure a couple leeches. I think they could get a pretty good clue of how much. I think you're giving them more credit than maybe they deserve. I think I've come up with the solution to medieval leeching. I'm so glad that you are not a doctor. The use of leeches also increases the risk of infection, which can further weaken a sick person's immune system. Well, then there is, goes that idea. Yeah. Okay. So. so, well, that was definitely an issue in the 1600s when the plague hit London, brought on by the fleas, the fleas that the rats not the were rats. Carrying. You're right. The Great Plague of London was the last major bubonic plague epidemic in Europe. Now, mind you. In the, England. In, in England. England. Okay. In England. Well, okay. England is part of Europe. Now, mind you, the Black Plague came over from Central Asia. Oh, my gosh. From Central Asia in 1331. That's the original Wuhan flu. So we have well over 300 years of pestilence. I wonder if the press made such a big deal out of it. You know they did. No, I don't don't think they did because I don't don't think they were all dead. No, they I think our press has evolved into, like, you remember our media literacy thing? Yeah. I think our press is involved into just, they're down in the gutter sometimes. With the leeches and the vermin. Speaking of media literacy, uh, if you want to find me on TikTok at Kim Harmon 937, I'm actually currently doing, just started a series of videos on media literacy. So, you know, if you want to check it out. But I don't think the press um, in in the, six, the 1300s was covering this because they were all dead. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, in 1665 through 1666, London lost roughly 15% of its population, while 68,596 deaths, I wonder how accurate that really is, mm. were recorded in the city. The true number was probably, uh, here's my answer, was probably <laughs> over 100,000. You need to read your notes before we go on the show. Just like you do. Keep oh in mind <laughs> that the worst of it happened in the summer months. When it, it peaked in September 1665 when 7,165 Londoners died in one week. That's a lot of people a lot in of a people. very short amount of time. Yeah. Now picture sweltering heat, the stench of unwashed bodies, along with this description from poet Giovanni Boccaccia. Good. That was pretty good. I think it's probably fairly accurate. I'm not ignorant. Mm. In men and women alike, at the beginning of the malady, certain swellings, either on the groin or under the armpits, waxed to the bigness of a common apple, others to the size of an egg, some more and some less, and these the vulgar named plague boils. You have no idea how hard it was. <laughs> this is written in old English, yeah, and it's I'm not my sentence structure. It yeah. was... Really Wait, difficult for me to say that. It's I just few, want you to recognize that. I Kim. do. I'm very proud of you. You did a great job. <sighs> um, but can you imagine having like a a painful boil, pus filled boil, the size of an apple in your armpit, or an egg, more or less, or an egg, more or less, or in your groin, more or less, because that's where like it was in the dark, shady parts of your body where you would get these pustules that are pretty freaking huge okay moving on blood and pus seeped out of these strange swellings which were followed by a host of other unpleasant symptoms fever chills vomiting diarrhea terrible aches and pains and then in short order death so who is going to handle all these disease-ridden corpses plague bearers of course before this church wardens usually handled burials but the number of dead was just too big for them to handle. Some even had to bury their dead in mass graves, giant pits that contained heaps of bodies unceremoniously piled atop each other. Plague bearers were hired by the English government to search for, carry, and bury the plague dead. Then they were housed in churches to keep, from, to keep them separate from the rest of society. Aside from the obvious risk of infection that came with the job, plague bearers also had to contend with the unquenchable stench and fest of endless corpses. Now, these are some quotes that we're using right, right now. Right, yeah, correct. Okay. Now, we're about to get into the most metal of all jobs. Let's say that someone you love is dying of the plague. They aren't physically able to atone for their sins on account of their swollen tongue and loss of senses due to pain. But you want to make sure they get into heaven, so what can you do? Hire a sin eater, of course. Now, sin eaters have a murky origin, but they're generally associated with Christianity, with most of our examples coming from Scotland, Wales, and England, although many variations did exist and they are present in some form in many cultures. It was not, however, sanctioned by the church. And I want to make that clear that sin eating was not recognized by the church. It was definitely a folkloric practice and uh, was frowned sounds, upon by. Sounds kind of cultish by me. It, it's, uh, it's, it's very, I don't know, uh, different. For well, the, cho the church didn't approve of it. Right. Yeah. The Pope nor King Henry they didn't, and his Church of England. Right. Um, okay. I don't know. They they specifically didn't even recognize it. Like they didn't want to acknowledge that it even existed. Now, for our purposes, the classic image of a sin eater seems to have emerged in the Middle Ages as a way of dealing with purgatory, which is the place where many Christians believe they will go if they have unrepentant but ultimately forgivable sins. So if you've committed, you know, maybe thievery, it's, you didn't have time to repent of it before you died, but it's not as bad as, say, murder. So you might, you would be more likely to end up in purgatory. Very little is known about sin eaters themselves during this early period, and much of what we know comes from the 17th and 18th century when sin eating made a sudden, although thankfully brief, comeback. Now, most Christians today would even argue with that, saying that a sin is a sin is a sin. 
Correct. Okay. Um, yes, a lot of Christians, and I think, and when we say Christians, we really mean Catholics, I think, um, because this is... Um, well, there were Protestants in medieval Europe and medieval There England. were, but the my understanding is that the concept of purgatory is a mostly Catholic concept, although... In the early, I don't er, know. Church, like, it might like the in Church of England. Church of England, if they England may have had, I don't know. We'd have to research. That's that That's true. So, so I'm going to steer I'm, clear of that. If I'm wrong, then I apologize. I don't know great details. I know now what like Catholicism, r- roughly what Catholicism versus Protestantism is like, but I don't know if the Church of England believed in purgatory. So, um, let me know. Anyway, so what did the sin eaters do? Well, they consume sin in one of the most macabre ways possible by eating food off of the dead individual. This is an excerpt from a book of antiquities that was published in 1813, and it sums up the practice as it's generally understood. Yeah, because I don't think I read this in the four Gospels. No. Okay. Okay, you ready? Okay. He sat down facing the door. Then they gave him a groat, four pence, which he put in his pocket, a crust of bread, which he ate, and a full bowl of ale, which he drank oft at a draught. After this, getting up from his stool, he pronounced with a composed gesture, the ease and rest of the soul departed, for which he would pawn his own soul. So that's right. The sin eater would take a piece of bread from atop the dearly departed, which was believed to have soaked up the sins of the dead. He would then eat it, wash it down with some beer and head off to make atonement for the corpse that was no longer able to. Ah, so the sin eater was, he literally ate the sin. He better not like get hit by an ox cart on his way to make atonement. Well, it's generally believed that sin eaters, because they took on so many sins, like this was their job. And because they took on the sins of so many people, um, you know, only part of the sins could be atoned for. Like it's almost like if you spend, um, like if you spend so much time in the sun, then your skin becomes permanently, your skin color becomes permanently changed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's kind of the same thing. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You spend so much time with other people's sin that it creates a sin on, on you that is unforgivable. So ultimately sin eaters were going to be doomed to hell. Um, but they, you know, they made a couple bucks four pence. Uh, well, yeah, the they're going to be doomed. If we, if we go into Christian, they're going to be doomed for. I think this is one of the forgivable or unforgivable sins. Like, I don't think this sends you to purgatory. I think this sends you to hell. Okay. Anyway, I'm just saying they're probably going, if you're, Modern day Christian, you're but they're probably not going, modern. Yeah, but you're going that way anyway because it doesn't match up with what the Bible teaches. But yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, now, I mean, because as we know, right, the only Jesus can save you from sin. So according these sin to modern can, Christianity, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, okay. Although the occupation of sin eater is a bit of a mystery, we do know that they were despised figures. Their services were to be acquired discreetly. As to even need one seems to suggest a sin of a more serious nature. And once they'd done their job, they were chased from the home, often being beaten and abused until they were gone. It's been speculated that one of the reasons for this is believed to be that looking a sin eater in the eye would curse you. So you wanted to be rid of them quickly. But more likely, it's like we said, with every sin they consumed, with every job they did, they were believed to become more damned, more sinful, and to some extent, more evil themselves. To be in the presence of a sin eater was to be in the presence of many people's sins. As such, they often lived as lepers, away from the general population, hated but needed in the event that someone died before they could confess their sins. The answer of who, in such a religious time, would pawn their soul is much the same as those who do our most dangerous and dismal jobs today. The poor, the needy, and the destitute. But where one may risk life and limb, the sin eater risked eternal damnation. Now, interestingly, the last known sin eater in England, Richard Munslow, died in 1906 when three of his four children died the same week. Hmm. Well. 
Yeah. So that is definitely sin eating is definitely the most metal of our uh, jobs that we're going to discuss today. Well, I hate to do this, but we're going to go back to poop with (laughs) one of the most disgusting jobs of all time, gong farmer. Hmm. Now, I know the name doesn't sound all that bad, doesn't sound bad to me. It may be a little noisy, maybe, but not too awful, except that the gong farming has nothing to do with gongs. Hmm. During the Middle Ages, going to the bathroom or relieving oneself meant using a privy. A privy privy typically consisted of raised board with one or more openings cut in the middle where the user would sit, kind of like an outhouse. Mm -hmm. Their fecal matter would plop into large holes called cesspits beneath them. It's an outhouse. Over time, <laughs> over time, the cesspits would fill up and start overflowing. When that happened, gong farmers had to go and empty them. Gong came from a word that means going. Oh, maybe like an old English. Like, I'm going, I'm going to the yeah, toilet. Yeah, exactly. And the farmers harvested the accumulation of months or even years of going to make sure all the foul material was removed. The workers would hop down into the pits where the feces came up to their waist or even higher. Ew! Because of the relative ease of getting them in and out, small boys were often employed. Oh, Lord! The cesspool cesspool contents were dumped into carts and taken to larger dump sites on the edge of town where more conventional farmers would use them as fertilizer. Could you imagine if you could only afford... (laughs) Could you imagine if you could only afford to live at the edge of town with the gong farmers and the tanners? Like, how bad would your life suck and how much would you stink? Yes. People in the Middle Ages rarely bathed, so gong farmers stunk. I mean, they really stunk. Because of their horrible stench, they were often restricted in where they could live. They were allowed to work only at night to spare their fellow citizens from seeing and smelling them. Wow. Besides the horrible smell and the problematic lack of friends, gong farmers encountered specific occupational hazards. Decaying fecal I mean, as you could guess, decaying fecal matter could produce poisonous gases. At least one gong farmer stumbled into a cesspool. He was cleaning and he drowned. Could you Im- you He drowned in poo. Violators of the rules for collecting the refuse and disposing of it were submerged in barrels up to their necks and placed on public display for hours on end. On the other hand, gong farmers were well paid. What are you going to do with all that money? Uh, Often earning in a day what others might make in a week, which equates to about $90 per ton in today's money. They had another potential source of income as well. Careless crappers occasionally drop rings or coins into the cesspits. Enterprising gong farmers comb through the mess with their bare hands oh, in so search gross. of those treasures. Now, it's there are so similar gross. jobs today, but like porta pots. Yeah, but, but we're going to talk they, about it, but it's so gross. But they like, just like stick the hose down in there and suck it out. Bare hands. It's so nasty. Okay. And they're going in like up to their neck. Or this drowning. This is the job so far. Yeah, gong farmers, I, would, I think, are one of the... I would if, rather be the king of the stool than a gong farmer. I think gong farmers are probably the worst job that I can think of. I, but mean, it, I mean, like, the king of the stool, there's people who get paid to do that now for people who need that kind of assistance. Right. Yeah. But it's not in it... Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, but yeah. Well, at least the gong farmers had an actual paid job with something of a title in use... Toshers weren't so lucky. These men made it their living by forcing entry into London sewers at low tide and wandering through them, sometimes for miles, searching out and collecting the miscellaneous scraps washed down from the streets above, including bones, fragments of rope, miscellaneous bits of metal, silver cutlery, and if they were lucky, coins dropped in the streets above and swept into the gutters. Although Atosher's work was pretty shady and secretive, their appearance sure wasn't. 19th century British journalist Henry Mayhew described how they, quote, may be seen, especially on the Surrey side of the Thames, habited in long, greasy, velveteen coats, furnished with pockets of vast capacity, and their nether limbs encased in dirty canvas trousers and any old slops of shoes provide themselves, in addition, with a canvas apron, which they tie around them, and a dark lantern similar to a policeman's. 
This they strap before them on the right breast in such a manner that on removing the shade, the bullseye throws the light straight forward when they are in an erect position. But when they stoop, it throws the light directly under them so they can distinctly see any object at their feet. They carry a bag on their back and in their left hand, a pole about seven or eight feet long on one end of which there is a large iron hoe. So um, I want to point out, this seems like a good point to point out that um, in the book, Oliver Twist, if you are a fan of Oliver Twist, which I am, the bad guy Fagin was most likely a tosher. Uh, he had a gang of boys that worked for him. They would go into the, into the sewers and they would try to find things um, to kind of bring back to him. I bet and, he was also sending them down in the cesspits. I don't, I don't know about that. But um, so that's kind of how they would pay their way and he would provide them with food or whatever. Now, most Toshers worked in gangs of three or four led by a veteran like Fagan, who was frequently somewhere between 60 and 80 years old. These men knew the secret locations of the cracks that lay submerged beneath the surface of the sewer waters, and it was there that Cash frequently lodged. Sometimes, Mayhew wrote, they dive their arm down to the elbow in mud and filth and bring up shillings, sixpence, half crowns, and occasionally half sovereigns and sovereigns. They always find these coins standing on edge uppermost between the bricks and the bottom where the mortar has been worn away. Weirdly, the fact that these men live to such ripe old ages is perhaps a testament to their profession. It's theorized that by exposing themselves to filth and disease for only a few hours at a time, Toshers actually built up their immune systems and they made a pretty decent living. They were actually thought of as sort of the aristocracy of the poor. They sound like they're just repurposing. Kind of. Okay. A little bit. So Toshing doesn't sound as bad as some other jobs. No, At I would you, say gong farming is definitely the worst. Yeah, that's, that's the worst so far. So we've talked about some of the grossest jobs in history. But do you know the worst part? Most of these jobs have a 21st century counterpart. We may not need fullers to stand for hours on end in vats of old urine, but you know what we do need? Practitioners of animal husbandry. That's right. These are people whose job it is to collect reproductive materials from a male animal, typically through use of artificial female reproductive parts. The material is then manually impregnated by the husbandry specialist and thereby ensuring the continuing of a farm or other animal production facilities. Now, like thoroughbred racehorses, they will not let the the horses mate in the natural horse mm-hmm. way. They It's always through artificial insemination mm-hmm. because they don't want to hurt either animal, take the chance on hurting yep. either animal. So imagine if that was your job is collecting uh, bodily fluids from a horse. Woo! Purifinders aren't a job anymore per se, but they've been replaced by a company called Duty Calls, D-O-O-D-Y, who purport to be the nation's premier provider of pet waste removal. They got nothing on me. For as little as $12, they'll come out and clean up your yard. Has that poo stayed in one place for too long? After they pick it up, and I'm not kidding, you can look this up on the internet if you want. After they pick it up, the company will help disguise that unsightly brown spot on the grass by using, and I quote, an environmentally friendly mixture of green food coloring, sugar, and water that is sprayed on the brown spot to help camouflage it. They also offer yard deodorizing services and and corporate goose poop removal. Okay. Maybe in certain neighborhoods, but not around here. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you really don't have time to clean up after your dog or you can afford to just hire somebody to come and do it for you, there yeah, you go. But to spray it and to deodorize? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. There's enough farm smells around here anyway. Yeah. Well, they did say that like if you're having a party or a get together or whatever and like you've let that the poop stay in one spot and like it bleaches your grass or whatever. Just don't cut the grass that week. That you like that's when you need to cover it. But yeah. Anyway. I, I just wouldn't cut the grass. There you go. Now, tanning isn't quite as bad as it used to be either, but you know what is? Working in a slaughterhouse. One worker described her working conditions like this. They are filthy, dirty places. There's animal feces on the floor. You see and smell the guts, and the walls are covered in blood and the smell. It hits you like a wall when you first enter and then hangs thick in the air around you. 
The odor of dying, dying animals surrounds you like a vapor. The injury and psychological trauma rate among slaughterhouse workers are some of the highest recorded as the annual turnover rate is nearly 100%. Now, where I went to grade school, back behind the playground, there was a slaughterhouse. Oh, my gosh. And imagine, us little kids are out there playing. You could hear the cows. Oh, my gosh. Mooing and stuff like that. How are you not deranged? I don't know. Because I... It was just there. It was just part of it. And yeah, no one, no one paid been, any attention um, to it. Especially if you live in England, there was a BBC documentary a few years back that talked about slaughterhouse workers and what a like a really dangerous um, job it is. Not only physically dangerous, but also psychologically. Like when you're around that for multiple... And they work long shifts too. They work like 12-hour shifts. So um, it can be really kind of taxing on you. Yeah, maybe just kids aren't as tough as we were back. Well, in the day. I mean, and you were playing on the playground. You weren't like in the slaughterhouse oh, doing we were, the death. We were, like we were making enough noise anyway. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the position of groom of the stool may have been eliminated in 1901, but think about what the average hotel cleaning person sees on a regular basis: from vomit to waste to bodies, rotten food to contraceptives. Hotel staff often have to deal with some pretty foul stuff, which is why it's always a good idea to tip your housekeeper. Well, we mentioned not if I'm not leaving any of that mess around. <laughs> anyway, I do tip. Anyway, we mentioned exterminators when we talked about the um, old school rat catchers. But what about those people who these days go in and clean hordes because we like oh, yeah. to watch hoarding. And, or what about the foreclosures where people will go in and just trash the house yeah, that's absolutely. getting foreclosed? Yeah, In addition to having to deal with clients who are likely suffering from extreme anxiety or other mental health issues that might be untreated, these cleaning services usually have to dispose of decaying garbage, possible waste products, and even dead and rotting animals. And look, I've it's, seen some. I've yeah, seen some pretty. pretty na- I've had to open some doors. Oh yeah, you for have some pretty for some of your filthy, Yeah, for some pretty nasty, filthy places. Like, how do people even? Li- how could you even stand to live in that? Because the stench yeah. with like maggots crawling out and yeah, imagine stuff being seeping out on the floor, and yeah. then you have to clean that. Yeah. Now, although leeches are still used in medicine, they aren't really harvested the way they once were. Well, I guess they figured how much blood <laughs> a leech will suck, didn't they? Uh, but you know what a. <laughs> A modern-day equivalent might be a body farm operator. There's actually a fancy name for what these scientists do. Taphonomic research. or taph- Yeah, taphonomic research. It's the study of what happens to the body between the point of death and recovery, and it helps forensic scientists learn how a body decomposes. And it's a pretty gross job, but because of studies and advancements that have come from body farm research... Lives have been saved and criminals have been removed from the public. I've seen documentaries on this. It's it's pretty interesting it's how they can go through and detail like how much, you know, the size of the larva, how long a body's been laying there. And even what type of larva. Yeah. Because I, some bugs will eat you before or after other bugs get to you. Yeah. It, it's amazing what they can do. And, you know, I thought of another really bad job is the people who like the people who go in and clean up crime, crime scenes. scenes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, although COVID has been called a plague, it's nothing like what London saw in the 1660s. Thankfully, we don't have the need of plague bears today, but we certainly have need of morticians. Not only can this job be a little disturbing at times, it can also be incredibly stressful. Imagine having to reassemble a person who has been in a fatal car accident. Not only do you need the medical skill to be able to know how to put and put bones and muscles back together where they need to go, but you also have a duty to the grieving family to make their loved one to try to preserve and recreate the body yeah. as much as possible. Right. So it can, it, that can know, be a really for those challenging last memories. Yeah. Right. It can be very challenging. We don't have sin eaters either, but a modern job that might cause some discomfort is lab technician. Whether you're doing a urinalysis, blood gases test, or fecal occult exam, Lab techs have to deal with some pretty nasty stuff. And when you consider that often healthy people don't need these kinds of tests, it just kind of adds to the scorn factor. Yeah, well, they're not up to their necks in poop cleaning out the crapper. That's true. Okay. Well, thank goodness we don't have gong farmers right now either, do we? Wrong. 
Ever been to an outdoor event in the summer with lots of people, like a fair or a festival? Ever drink too many lemon shakeups? If you've wondered how to clean a porta potty, I'm going to fill you in on the details. The company will insert a small vacuum hose into the opening of the toilet, which then pumps the waste tank dry. This collected waste is then transported by sanitation trucks to the nearest wastewater treatment facility where it is properly treated. Once the holding tank has been cleaned, the company adds about five gallons of odor control and a disinfectant additive. Then someone manually cleans the walls of the potty as well as the floors, the seat, and the urinal. And a lot of these companies also go out and clean septic tanks. Mm. But again, if this is done right, they're in protective clothing, gloves, and they're not... Right. Physically touching poop and pee and yeah. everything else that goes into porta pots. Yeah, but I mean, I definitely appreciate those workers who do that stuff because there's no way that I could handle it. I guess then a modern equivalent of a tosher would be maybe a dumpster diver. You know, the people who literally make a living by upcycling, upcycling and reselling other people's trash. I've actually seen families who even get all their meals by eating the leftovers that are thrown out by restaurants. And, and sometimes it's not because... It's they're poor and they can't afford yeah, it. Yeah, they choose to. They do choose it. to do this. Yeah, they have they have the money to yeah. go to the grocery store. In fact, these dumpster divers will tell you that the United States restaurant industry throws away twenty two to thirty three billion pounds of food a year, and so they are just doing their part to help reduce waste. Yeah, I've I've seen documentaries on this. Now, mm-hmm. certainly there are people that are doing sure. it because. They, they have no other way to get food, but right. the people you're talking about are- Do it by choice. By choice. Yep. And according to professional dumpster diver Matt Malone, he can make over $250,000 a year just by reselling the things that companies and other people throw away. So, and I, and when I, I read about Matt Malone, he's not talking about, you know, you throw away like your 1986 time timex watch or anything like that like he's talking about he goes to best buy or um like corporate places that a lot of them when they get the old technology or whatever they literally will just throw it away he's talked about getting like a a ton of like bluetooth speakers and really high-end stuff that companies just pitch well remember kellen was going to yeah, help us. Yes. Kellen was going to help us clean the house. I took my watch off. Yeah, I, I I put it on the little nightstand there, and Kellen, you know, wish he was like maybe three. Yeah, and she wanted to help clean the house, so we said, "Yeah, go ahead." And next morning, guess what? My watch was gone, and the trash had I already run. That, yeah, yeah. So, so there's all kinds of stuff that you can find in the garbage. Yep. So I guess, like with our show. Along with all the controversy and all the conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. it's like to kind of drag out sometimes. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yep. But there will always be those jobs that need done that no one wants to do. And you know what I'll say? Thank goodness we got people who are willing to get in there I and do those hard you. jobs. I'm feeling like Mike Rowe right here. I know. It is a little bit like dirty jobs, but thank you so much. If you are one of those people that do the dirty jobs nowadays and that do gross things, um, thank you for what you do. We and Mike, if you're listening, we come on the that. show. Come on the show. No offense, <laughs> Tate. We weren't trying to copy you. These no, 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 completed. not at all. Yeah. Okay. So Kim. Yeah. If someone wanted to get hold of us, how would they do it? You can write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, an hour of your life. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you really want to get to know me, myself, and I personally a little bit better, you can check me out at Kim Harmon 937 on the TikTok. Steve does not yet have a TikTok. I've been trying to convince him to get one, but he staunchly says no. Yep. So, Well, I maintain enough of our other social accounts, you like do. Facebook and Twitter, and uh, you pretty much take care of the Instagram. I do. Yeah. Yep. So with that, Please write us. Tell us what you think. If you have an idea for another show, let us know. Uh And uh, you know what? We we get a lot of emails from people, just comments and things like that. We love it. Yeah, we love it. So go ahead. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. Just write us an email and say hi because we appreciate it. If you really want to run into us, most Saturday mornings, if you live here in the Dayton area, we're going to be at Winans at the Green. We go in there and we kind of talk and we kind of set up 
what we're going to do for the next show. But A lot of Monday nights. You can find us at Wandering Griffin in Beaver Creek, Fairborn area, where I am kicking butt at trivia Yep, with some help from my teammates. So with all that, anything else, Kim? I think that's it. All right. So from our studio in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Lots of sources this week, including... BuzzFeed, Ancestry.com, Liberty Leather Goods, Stone Street Leather, Terry Harmon, London Labor and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew, Unusual Historicals, The French Canadian Genealogist, BC Medical Journal, British National Archives, HistoryofYesterday.com, The BBC, and Smithsonian Magazine.